If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And listeners, I have to tell you, I am smiling from ear to ear and almost laughing because one of my best friends in the whole world is a guest today, and that's Perry Monastero. And I got to tell you a little bit about him, but before I do, let me kind of promo what we're talking about today. It is election season in America, and the winds of change are afoot. In fact, I have already given to support whoever is running against Senator Susan Collins in Maine. By the way, there's a great fundraising campaign for that. Literally, you give to whoever the Democratic candidate is that's going to be running against Collins. I've also contributed to the senatorial candidate of Teresa Tomlinson here in Georgia. She's running against an incumbent Republican. And let me say that if we can flip that, we can maybe flip the whole state. And we're also supporting a strong Democratic candidate, Lee Thompson, who's running for chair of the Gwinnett County Commission. Now, I know that the vast majority of listeners, like 98% of them, are not in Georgia. Gwinnett County is a large suburban county. Once again, we're on the verge of flipping Gwinnett County. If we can flip that, we can flip the whole state. But the whole reason I'm sharing with you about who I'm contributing to politically is that my husband and I, every election cycle, we pick a few candidates to back strongly and make gifts that are significant for us throughout the election cycle. And we also typically pick one candidate and then we host a local fundraising event. And, you know, we don't normally raise that much. If we're lucky, we raise between five and like $12,000. But it's something that we do for a local candidate to really try to create the state and the, and the municipality that we want to be living in. So while I'm not a professional political fundraiser, I have got a bit of experience as a donor and also as a political fundraising volunteer. I am especially struck at how different political fundraising is from traditional charitable fundraising. I have received high-pressure calls from congressional candidates, and I'm not making this up, actually sitting congresspeople who've called to ask me for as little as $250. And I kind of scratch my head, and I'm like, wow, either times are hard if you're only asking me for $250 or $1,000, or you know, you're not valuing your time very much as someone who's sitting in Congress. But 
I will share with you that every single one of those calls always has this strong sense of urgency. They will say to me, Dolph, we have a quarterly fundraising report that is due at midnight tonight. Can you make a $1,000 gift right now? It's going to look good if we raise more money than our opponent. And let me say, they are not at all shy about coming back a month later and having another urgent reason about why I need to give them another 250 or another 1000 So there is no doubt that political fundraising is very different from nonprofit fundraising. The quick timelines, the urgency of campaigns often mean that political fundraisers are thinking about the short term. Sometimes I kind of scratch my head because I also notice that those charities that we give to generously really do a lot of work to cultivate us, and the political candidates really don't. It's kind of, you know, wham, bam, get in there, ask for the money, and get out. What I'm really curious to know is what can we as nonprofit fundraisers learn from political fundraisers? And boy, do we have a great guest for you today. Perry Monastero has done both political fundraising and traditional nonprofit fundraising. And when I say traditional nonprofit fundraising, let me be clear. He is a top of the food chain development director. He knows his stuff when it comes to fundraising. Now, Perry and I go back a long way. He is one of my best friends from my time in Philadelphia way back in the 20 knots. And back when I met him, he was an executive director actually of of an LGBTQ foundation. And then he transitioned from that and went to a large multi-million dollar organization as a fundraiser and built a fundraising shop that did incredible things for that organization. In the last year or so, Perry has started his own consulting practice, RPM Consulting. He is a creator, builder, problem solver, and loves helping his clients make a bigger difference in the world through fundraising, capacity building, and philanthropic strategy. So join me in welcoming Perry to the podcast as we talk about political fundraising and what we in the nonprofit sector can learn. Hey, Perry, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Dolph. It's great to be here with you. I'm so happy to talk with you today. Same here. I know it's been a long time coming. We've both had technical difficulties on each of our ends the last couple of times we tried to do it. So I'm thrilled that we made it happen. And Perry, it's always, always good to see you and hear you. And we probably got started about 20 minutes after we got on Skype because we were we were spending so much time really having a good time and laughing. And <laughs> and I'm sure that yeah. I'm sure that our guests are going to hear that as well. But now tell me, because again, you've now done some political fundraising campaigns as well. What's going through your mind when you do that political ask? It's really interesting how you set the stage for this conversation. I think you're absolutely right in discerning between the two. There's a level of urgency that one experiences during a political fundraising campaign versus a campaign for a nonprofit, whether it's a a capital campaign or an annual fund campaign. And the urgency is not as blaring in your ears, blaring in your head. So you've done a good job of describing how those are different. But I think both types of fundraising styles can complement one another. And I think people who are in fundraising for nonprofits can learn from those who are fundraising for a political campaign and vice versa. The first thing that comes to mind with regard to political fundraising was that if you don't have that level of urgency, you're missing out. There's um, something I learned pretty quickly with the team that I was a part of, was that we had exactly, as you stated, timetables. And the timetables are real. 
And the timetables are real because the people looking at it are your direct competition. And there's a very keen uh, sense of who else is in the race, whether it's one or in the case of the first candidate, she had 47 (laughs) competitors. The fact that these folks who are working on these different campaigns are looking at these reports And it might inspire them to raise more money. It might inspire them to drop out of the race or could do a little bit of both, depending on who you are at those campaigns. Folks were constantly looking at those reports. So there was that level of urgency. When a politician calls you up and says, and Dolph, I know that you've done a lot of political contributions and and fundraising yourself on behalf of candidates. You've always done that as long as I've known you. And when they call you to say that there's an urgency... Most of the time, they are not making it up, right? And so then that raises the question, if you're coming from the perspective of, I'm working at a nonprofit, I'm trying to raise money. Unless you come up with internal deadlines that speak to your overall vision and your goal for why you're fundraising, and you're not going to be able to create that urgency. And I would argue that folks who are working in nonprofits could learn a few things from political fundraisers as I did. The truth is, there is some value in having routine check-ins, routine reporting out to the constituents that are part of the fundraising team and your greater population. So in the case of a nonprofit doing a campaign, once you announce your goal, you probably should report back on how you're doing at various points. Or you set up goals along the way so you can make announcements that we made this particular goal and now we're on our way because this new set of dollars is going to help us accomplish A, B, or C. A could be it's going to help us with the building portion of this campaign, or B, it's going to meet our needs for staffing or to save a particular program that is, I'm just making this up, although it has happened to me in my life professionally. Sometimes you have to raise money for a program that's been cut by a government funder or a major funder, uh, institutional or household funder who said, you know what? This is it. We're not able to continue to contribute. That level of urgency and giving a cause, a purpose, is essential for the nonprofit fundraising. When you've got a political campaign, everyone knows what you're trying to do. It is crystal clear. And that is an advantage, I think, that you have when fundraising for a candidate. Everyone knows why the money is so urgent. It's an expensive thing to do. In our country, the way we have a system set up, we have to lean into the the reality that has been created for us. And that reality is the cost of running a campaign is so high, in large part because we have long campaign periods in comparison to, let's say, other countries where they have shorter ones. And therefore, there's less opportunity for that duration, that the need to have multiple even advertising campaigns for one season. And I'll also say, I think one of the other ways our system in politics is different than others is we also have this series of elections. So we have primaries and then we have runoffs and, you know, then we have the general election or sometimes we have two runoffs between the primaries and the general election. And the interesting thing is each of those becomes its own fundraising opportunity in part because the limits get reset every single time you got to go back to the ballot box. Right. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. It's one of the most frustrating things about fundraising But it's also one of the exciting things. And if you can find a way to generate the excitement with yourself and challenging yourself with these goals and working with your team, it can be more enjoyable than frustrating. 
with the team fully in place and your campaign leadership engaged, you can throughout the period work to give people lists of donors that they can call and then check in with them regularly. And while I'm talking about this particular process, it's also a way to limit people's frustration. It's a way to keep them excited is to know like, okay, so here's here's a particular challenge I have. I'm, I need to call X number of people and within a particular time. And then you go back to them, you thank them and thank the people who've been volunteering or being paid to make the calls. Usually it's volunteers and to then give them another set. One thing that you've heard of before, because you've talked to so many folks running for office, is that they have to do call time. What is call time, Dolph? What happens during call time? Well, so it's interesting. Here in Georgia, I know a former congressperson who they actually have an office building across the street from the Capitol. And everyone in Congress, for each of the two parties, of course, they're you know different suites, but every single person who's in Congress has to go sit in a cube and make their fundraising calls a certain number of hours a week. And we're not talking three. We're typically talking, you know, in in the tens and the 20 hours a week of doing nothing but making your fundraising calls. I think some of our most successful politicians have been ones that set aside significant amounts of time. People that I know that have done the political fundraising much more than I say to me that if they're not giving 10 or 15 hours a week at minimum, they are not going to be competitive for when they encounter that race where it's either close or they have somebody that has raised a ton of money. It could mean the end of their term in office. And unfortunately, it's the system that we are in and it is reality. Perry, before we go much further, let's try to jump back on the importance of urgency and some ways that nonprofits that are not doing political fundraising could use urgency. And so I know, for example, you said, you know, maybe to say to some prospects, oh, we've got to turn our report in by Monday, which is why we need you to make the gift now. One of the things that I also think about oftentimes the way campaigns work is they start to have some momentum. And typically you want to get your largest gifts first. And so to be able to say to someone, we only need two more gifts at the $10,000 level before we can start getting other gifts and start to really close this campaign out. So can you make a commitment by Tuesday for a $10,000 gift? Yeah, what you just said is inspiring me and reminding me that there is some value and utility in acquiring challenge gifts from particular donors, from donors that you can on the side or in advance of your campaign ask them if you are raising, we look to be able to raise, we believe we can raise $1.1 million or you know, 500000 or $60 million, depending on your organization and purpose. Would you be willing to give X dollar amount if we are able to raise? And by sharing with folks that you, as either an open donor or an anonymous donor, is or are willing to do this, we're going to be able to match up to a certain dollar amount. That can inspire other folks. But that's not only what you inspired me to think of. You're also, the way you just described the urgency question is, well, you could put a deadline into that match (laughs) for sure. Uh, And I've experienced that for sure, where it actually helps motivate people to give because they know that the offer is exploding, whether it's a single match or a double match or up to three times the three to one ratio. And can I throw something radical in there? You could even have multiple deadlines in there. So, for example, you've got 12 months to raise it, and you need to get 40% of the way in the first 
four months or whatever. And, you know, and then you've got to get 80% of the way by the eighth month or ninth month. And then you can do the rest in the last few months. That actually gives you the ability to, in some cases, go back to your most loyal donors and say, look, we know that you gave eight months ago, but we've got to bring in another $1,000 or 10000 or however much it is in order to meet this match. Can you do a little something extra now? We've got to do this within the next month. And so what you just described to me sounds like a perfect example of taking a principle from political fundraising and applying it to a nonprofit campaign. A lot of political campaigns, how many emails do you get a day? Once you give to a particular campaign, you might get one every other day. I have to share with you, I have really good email hygiene. So I unsubscribe to a lot. And and then if they don't actually unsubscribe me, I flag them as junk and they then go into junk mail. So I don't get that many political fundraising emails because I already know what causes I want to give to. Right. Got it. Got it. Some nonprofits don't take advantage of all of their tools, whether it's email, social media, advertising on their website, whether there's a pop-up when you go to the website, and making phone calls. And of course, the way to create urgency if you're fundraising for a nonprofit is live conversation. The conversion ratio, and the more seasoned fundraisers know this, the, the conversion ratio of an ask to receiving a gift is much higher when you're having a a conversation live or when you can see them in person, as you, you can imagine. Why? There's a respect that folks have for the in-person conversation. They get the importance and the urgency around it because you're taking time to directly speak with them. and gives them a chance to ask questions, to respond to you if you're talking about the campaign, and maybe offer their input. That's another way to get their buy-in. And let me also say they're relentless. And I love that they're relentless. And so as an example, there's another, Georgia's in an unusual position. We currently have two Senate seats. So both of our Senate seats are up for election this year because of a vacancy. So Georgia's in a little bit of an unusual position. We have a lot of people running for Senate. So as an example, there's one Senate candidate on the D side, of course, who will call and leave me a voicemail immediately. I mean, within moments, follow up. And, and by the way, leaves his personal cell phone number on my on my voicemail within moments follows up with an email that's has my name in it always mentions my husband's name Frank always every single time and then if I don't respond 3 days later I will get another voicemail and another email I mean truly relentless and it's almost like they're not afraid that I'm going to get tired of hearing from them. I'm going to hear from them until they hear from me. Right, right. And, you know, I'm going to share with you what I've heard from folks who are in nonprofit fundraising worlds where they bristle at that level of assertiveness. My caution to them is if you avoid following up with some folks, you're leaving money on the table. Someone said they're going to give to you. You have to finish the, the collection, actually. In some cases, people appreciate the follow-up. How busy are we? We like lose track of time. I mean, you might be meeting with somebody, and the next thing you know, you're picking your kid up from soccer practice, and you got to make dinner, and you forget that, oh, I made that pledge earlier, and it's due in a week, and you, you forget that it's you know two weeks later, and you didn't give. Right. But I'll also say, 
I also think that helps candidates get to know faster, which means they can strike you off the list and just know you're not a prospect and stop wasting time on you. In this one example, because we've not yet had our primaries in Georgia as we're recording this, we're supporting a different D candidate for the same race because, again, we've not had the primaries yet. And really what I need to do, because the person actually called me earlier today, it's why I'm thinking about it, I need to send the person an email or call them and say, hey, you know, we love you. We loved you when you ran for Congress. However, we're supporting this other person and, you know, just wanted to make sure you know. And then I'm sure we'd get crossed off his list, at least until after the primaries. If he wins the primary, I'm sure we'll get put back on his list. That's a very good point. Very good point. Yes. But I think so often in nonprofit fundraising, and let me say, and I love nonprofit fundraising, but I think so often we get so stuck in this, oh, well, I have to cultivate more, I have to cultivate more. And you can get three years in, four years in, and still not feel like you've cultivated enough to ask. There are times when folks can get stuck and they, they may not want to ask. That's where the sense of urgency is so essential. It's a part of fundraising. And that's why deadlines and reporting help you gauge what you're doing. One of the things that was much more apparent in the fundraising campaigns I've been a part of, not as much with the nonprofits, is that specific dollar amounts are openly discussed among large groups of people. So you're looking at somebody's name, you're like, what could they do right now? What do you think they might be able to do uh, over time? Does it make sense to ask them for the large gift early? Are they the type of folks, given their history, you need to start in with a certain range and then you build up because they don't give the largest gifts on the first try? We have these open conversations with folks that either know them or we get the data around them in the political campaigns, whereas in the nonprofit campaigns, you get some volunteers together. You might have to do a little bit of training and conversation around just comfort level of talking about money and people that they may know. In some cases, maybe they're friends, just like it is in the um, political campaign world. And I think those conversations are helpful to get focused. You get a sense of not just urgency, but you get clarity. And you might get feedback that your ask was either, sooner or later, you're going to figure out if your ask was either too high or too low, and if you missed the mark. You, you need to listen for that either during the conversation or afterward. And it doesn't hurt to go back and ask for a higher or lower dollar amount at another time. So I got two things on that, Perry. The first is one of the ways that I think political fundraising is really different is if you give over $250, it's public. But I also think that changes the culture of people's willingness to talk about it because it's automatically public. If you give $251 to a candidate, your name's on a report somewhere that anyone can find and anyone can see. But I agree with you. We need to figure out how to move move the needle within our own volunteer corps so that they're comfortable around that. The other one, though, that I just have to reflect on, and, you know, gosh, I'd love to get your perspective on this, and I'd love it if you're like, and Dolph, I kind of disagree with you, because then we can kind of hash it out here for <laughs> listeners. I'm just saying, I'd love for you to be like, Dolph, kind of disagree with you. Um, and you and I are good enough friends that I know we could hash it out, and neither of us would take it personally. Right, right. But I've really never felt like I mean, within reason, I've never felt like you can ask someone for too much money. And the example that I always give is when I was in my early 20s, I was just out of school. I was making like $21,000 a year at Jewish Family and Career Services. And I lived 
almost next door to the High Museum of Art because at the time it was not in such a good neighborhood. It's not moved, but the neighborhood has changed. But if you knew the high, where the High Museum of Art was 30 years ago, and if you went west of that, it was not a very good neighborhood. And so I lived, you know, a couple blocks from there. And so I became a $500 donor to the High Museum of Art because of the access it gave me. So yeah, so I literally was giving them about 5% of my income every year, gross income because of the access it gave me. At $500, I got invitations to a few receptions a year. Uh, they always had a, a really cool avant-garde film series. I got free admission for me and three other people to a film almost every Friday night, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of viewed it not just as my philanthropy, but also as my entertainment money, honestly. I was like, okay, this is what I'm spending on entertainment this year. Um, but so somehow in the High Museum's database, I came up as, well, clearly, you know, if you're in your early 20s and you're given $500 a year, you must have a much, much higher capacity than that. And so they were starting to do a capital campaign and someone actually called me up and invited me to coffee. And I was young and stupid and didn't know why, honestly. And um, I'm like, sure, I don't know anything about you, but I'm interested to learn what, what you're planning on building at the high. So, <laughs> so I met for the person for a coffee at the high coffee shop, which by the way, my membership got me in there for free and got me a free cup of coffee. So I met with the person and they asked me for like, and not even that much, all things considered. They asked me for like 5000 or 10000 or something like that. But you know, when you're making 20, low 20s a year, 5000 is a big chunk of change. And so when he asked me if I would consider a gift of $5,000, I was not offended at all. I actually remember being flattered, thinking that he thought I could make a gift of $5,000. And, you know, and I've never been that shy of talking about money. So I actually, I actually probably laughed and was like, I need to tell you, I make $21,000 a year. And... <laughs> I can't do five, but I said this guy, but you know, I'm not planning on doing anything extra. I could do 750. And I know he probably walked away disappointed, but you know, my gift for the year went up by 50% and I wasn't offended. That whole story is is so amusing to me for so many levels, especially since I know you um, so well. And I'm sure you appreciated that they were looking to get to know you better and, and to cultivate you. And so I think that person who was talking with you should have felt, or at least I would have felt, it was a success. I, I got a larger gift from a, a, you know, a donor, a young donor, and a larger commitment among someone who just told me that this is five or more percent of my salary. So, you know, to your point, though, that could you offend somebody by asking for too much? I have offended people for asking for too much. So No, hold on. I need a story. You can't just tell me that, Perry. I need a story. <laughs> I can't because it might be listening right now. An anonymize it. Anonymize it. D take it to another city. I've seen your call. You know, you've lived in New York and in Central Florida. So take it to another city. I got to have a story. You cannot just say to me, you offended someone without, without putting some proof behind that pudding. I would say that as part of my counterpoint, I'm not going to say this is an argument, but my counterpoint to you is that some people will bristle because the fact that I asked for too much, asked for a mid six-figure gift among someone that was able to do it, but they were not happy with the particular cause at that time. And I think that brought out their frustration and um, disappointment in what they perceived as the organization's shortcomings. In another case, it made somebody very uncomfortable because they were not able to fulfill on that contribution, and it made them feel 
less than worthy. So that's what the person communicated to me. And I, I apologized for misunderstanding what was a possibility. And I had asked for a range and they were able to come back and say, I can do a, a smaller dollar amount, a lower range. But those are two cases where it wasn't as if they were offended. You know, they weren't angry with me. They were, one was wanting to use that opportunity to express their frustration with the organization. And it was a good learning experience for me to take back to the organization's leadership. And the second point was the person just didn't want to disappoint. And so I hear you. And admittedly, it's funny. I've never thought about it this way, but I also think maybe the high set their volunteer up to fail and probably left a bad taste in the volunteer's mouth. It's like, wow, I met with this kid who, you know, couldn't really do anything and I was set up to fail. So, okay, I, I hear you. I, I see the point. I see the point. While people may not be offended, it might not might not be a good idea to do that. Sorry, um, Perry and I are passing notes to each other by the by the audio, and literally we're doing it on. I'm doing it on three by five cards. He's doing it on paper. Um, man, I miss you, Perry. I miss you being just down the street from me. Likewise, likewise. So the other thing I just kind of, we probably need to move to the off the map question in just a second. But the other thing that I kind of wanted to ask you about around political fundraising. And so I know we've, we've talked about the shorter cultivation timeline. We've talked about the sense of urgency. But the other thing that I notice is there's also not the same level of follow-up. And I'm a huge fan of acknowledgement and follow-up for nonprofits, but there's often not the same, the same level of follow-up for political campaigns. So what I think I'm hearing from your question is that there's not this stewardship that takes place at nonprofits. Uh, in comparison, the, the political fundraising is not a short-term relationship. It's very transactional in nature. And so it's like, where are you in the moment? And while you might get a very personalized request, as you have with the political candidates that you support, they're very in tune to who you are. And yet, it doesn't feel they have those skill sets. A lot of folks involved in the political fundraising are not thinking, well, I'm going to develop these long-term relationships. So many of the folks that I'm familiar with, they end up getting hired from one campaign to the next. They often move around from state to state. And so they don't have that opportunity to see longitudinally what happens when you're able to be in one place for a period of time. And then you need to see that person again. And you see that person multiple times a year. And So I guess, yeah, I, I could see the distinction between the two in that way. Um, if you are a political fundraiser, and you get invited to participate in a campaign and another campaign, as in the state reps, they need to run again every two years. The federal reps need to run every two years. So if you get to stick with a particular candidate, then you can. You have that opportunity to do that stewardship and increase the dollars much more easily. And it won't feel like transactional in that case. So maybe that's something that political fundraisers could learn from us in the nonprofit sector. Hey, you know, show a little more gratitude, a little more thanks. And it might be, it might be easier. We, you know, we might not dodge your voicemails twice before we call you back. I have to say that I, I think I could keep learning from people in the political world, but then there are also things I would like to share with folks who are political fundraisers. It's a privilege to be in this field because we keep learning. Right. Absolutely. So, Perry, I'm going to transition us over to the off-the-map question. 
I have known you for almost 20 years and I have learned something about you that I have not, never <laughs> known about you, never heard about you. And that is that you also study insects. Now, how does someone like you with a doctorate degree in education get started with a hobby of insects? Dr. Andy Bednarik was not only my science teacher, he was my Boy Scout leader in high school. And he would take us on these trips. He was a Yale professor of entomology, and, but he was also a high school teacher. And he taught us about mayflies, some of which he had discovered on his own. And a mayfly actually in 2017 was named after him. Bednarik, I think, is named after his last name. And what we would do is we'd go camping and then we'd go in the streams and the, the marshes and find the mayflies or the other types of insects. And then we'd have to put them into containers and identify them. And we learned a lot about how those particular insects were, this is back in the 80s, he was talking to us about climate change, are arbiters of what could happen. So you watch particular insects and how over time, do they increase? Do they stay the same? Do they start to dwindle? And it could be a reflection of the environment, whether it's pollution, excess sun, not enough rain. And so I gained an appreciation for climate change and, and the environment through the study of insects. And I, I love insects. I once had the hissing beetles, Madagascar hissing cockroaches as well. And I had them as pets for a period of time. And then I turned them over to a zoo because they made so many babies. And then next thing you know, I had literally a hundred and some. <laughs> so hold on. Were you a uh, youth at that time or were you an adult? I was a youth at that time. And I had just a handful of these hissing cockroaches for a work project and did not anticipate that they would be reproducing. And when they did, that's when we figured out where we could take them. It's been so long, Dolph, that was the 80s. I don't remember where I took them. So I'm going to start saying breed like Madagascar cockroaches <laughs> instead of breed like bunnies. Wow. Okay, good to know. So so listeners, the takeaway, if you're at home and you want Madagascar cockroaches, only get one because if you get two, you could end up with a lot of them. So that's the, that, is, that apparently is the moral of the story. Perry, honestly, I did not know this about you. I did not know that once upon a time you were a Madagascar uh, cockroach farmer. Um, I have, uh, wow, <laughs> that, is, that is super cool. Uh, I, I am so glad that I had this opportunity to chat with you today. It's been great to see and speak with you, Dolph. It's been a pleasure. So if you are interested in learning more about the type of work Perry does and the services offered by RPM Consulting, make sure you check out their website at rpmconsulting.group. That is rpmconsulting.group. Perry has also decided to offer our listeners a one-hour complimentary assessment of your COVID-19 fundraising strategy. And if there was ever a time for urgency in your fundraising, it is probably when you're thinking about your COVID-19 fundraising strategy. So make sure that you reach out to him and do that. And let me also share with you that Perry will be releasing in July a study on organizational adaptation and resilience during COVID-19. I'm sure he's probably using some of the tools and techniques he learned when he was a doctoral student at the University of Pennsylvania, and I know I cannot wait to read that report. Hey, Perry, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. 
Thank you, Dolph. Really enjoyed every moment of this call and to, to reconnect with you. And it's been a pleasure to be on this call with you and to reach your listeners. If you were just busy Googling the web to see how you could get two Madagascar cockroaches and start your own Madagascar cockroach farm, and so you did not write down Perry's URL, which is a pretty simple URL, rpmconsulting.group, don't worry about it. You can always go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com where we have got all of Perry's information, his LinkedIn profile, his website, everything you might need to know. Of course, as you know, we've got our transcript there. We've got some other great goodies for you at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And if you like today's show, please take a moment to review us on your streaming app of choice. Kay Morrison left us this great review of the podcast on Stitcher. I love listening to this podcast while doing the boring office work of filing. I'm always taking notes and bookmarking the links. There is such invaluable information shared. Please keep up the great work. Thank you for the review, Kay Morrison. You have helped others find the podcast. And let me also say, you made my day when I read the review. So thank you so much. That is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.